Welcome to the Republican Professor. If you're feeling discouraged, sad, if you're feeling that you're not sure if there's hope for the future, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling disoriented, we're glad that you're here with us because that's the focus of this podcast is to provide a resource of community and training to make the world a better place, a little better than we found it. That's the very small goal that we have here, but we do feel that it's worth doing and that it is possible. Today, we have a very special guest. Can't believe this guest is with us today. I cannot believe it. So excited. Brett Kavanaugh joins us on The Republican Professor uh, the Honorable Brett Kavanaugh is a former uh, circuit court judge on the D.C. Circuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and he joins us through his judicial writing, his dissent in Heller versus District of Columbia and that would be in the 670th volume of the Federal Reporter Third Series, starting on page 1269. The decision itself starts on page 1244 in 2011, I believe it was. And Judge Kavanaugh is dissenting in that opinion. So here's Judge Kavanaugh dissenting in Heller versus District of Columbia. The Second Amendment to the Constitution provides a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment confers, quote, an individual right to keep and bear arms. In McDonald versus City of Chicago, the court added that the right to keep and bear arms is a, quote, fundamental, unquote, constitutional right implicit in our scheme of ordered liberty. And, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, unquote. In Heller, the court ruled that the District of Columbia's ban on the possession of handguns violated the Second Amendment. Yeah! In the wake of Heller, the District of Columbia enacted a new gun law. Shocker. As relevant here, D.C. bans possession of most semi-automatic rifles and requires registration of all guns possessed in the District of Columbia. In this case, we are called upon to assess those provisions of D.C.'s law under Heller. In doing so, we are, of course, aware of the long-standing problem of gun violence in the 
Democrat District of Columbia. Sorry, I added the word Democrat. That's not Brett. That's not Brett Kavanaugh. Here's the Honorable Judge Brett Kavanaugh again. <laughs> In part for that reason, Heller has engendered substantial controversy. As a lower court, however, it is not our role to relitigate Heller or to bend it in any particular direction. Our sole job is to faithfully apply Heller and the approach it set forth for analyzing gun bans and regulations. In my judgment, both DC's ban on semi-automatic rifles and its registration requirement are unconstitutional under Heller. By the way, in case you have never heard of Brett Kavanaugh before, let me tell you just a little bit about him. He was uh, a, an assistant of George W. Bush in the White House. Uh, he's the only member of the current Supreme Court that worked in the White House for that many years. He was the only member of the Supreme Court that was in the White House on 9-11 and has significant executive branch experience. Um, George W. Bush, uh, as president, appointed him, nominated him to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in uh, where he was confirmed by the Senate in 2006. He served in that capacity from 2006 until 2018 uh, when another Republican president, Donald J. Trump, appointed him to the United States Supreme Court and a Republican Senate confirmed him in that position. And it was Republican Senates both times. It was Republican pre uh, presidents both times. Keep that in mind as you listen to Brett Kavanaugh here in 2011 in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Here's the Honorable then Judge Brett Kavanaugh uh, continuing in his dissent. And I'm now on page, I'm still on page 1269 in the federal third series, Federal Reporter, volume 670. In Heller, the Supreme Court held that handguns, the vast majority of which today are semi-automatic, are constitutionally protected because they have not traditionally been banned and are in common use by law-abiding citizens. There is no meaningful or persuasive constitutional distinction between semi-automatic handguns and semi-automatic rifles. Semi-automatic rifles, like semi-automatic handguns, have not traditionally been banned and are in common use by law-abiding citizens for self-defense in the home, hunting, and other lawful usage, uses. 
Moreover, semi-automatic handguns are in are used in connection with violent crimes far more than semi-automatic rifles are. Now I'm on page 1270. It follows from Heller's protection of semi-automatic handguns that semi-automatic rifles are also constitutionally protected and that DC's ban on them is unconstitutional. By contrast, fully automatic weapons, also known as machine guns, have traditionally been banned and may continue to be banned under Heller. <laughs> DC's registration requirement, which is significantly more stringent than any other federal or state gun law in the United States, is likewise unconstitutional. Heller and later McDonald said that regulations on the sale, possession, or use of guns are permissible if they are within the class of traditional, long-standing gun regulations in the United States. Registration of all lawfully possessed guns, as distinct from licensing of gun owners or mandatory record-keeping by gun sellers, has not traditionally been required in the United States, and even today remains highly unusual. Under Heller's history and tradition-based test, D.C.'s registration requirement is therefore unconstitutional. It bears emphasis that Heller, while enormously significant jurisprudentially, was not revolutionary in terms of its immediate real-world effects on American gun regulation. Indeed, Heller largely preserved the status quo of gun regulation in the United States. Heller established that traditional and common gun laws in the United States remain constitutionally permissible. The Supreme Court simply pushed back against an outlier local law, D.C.'s handgun ban, that went far beyond the traditional line of gun regulation. As Heller emphasized, quote, few laws in the history of our nation has, have come close to the severe restriction of the district's law. After Heller, however, D.C. seemed not to heed the Supreme Court's message. Instead, D.C. appeared to push the envelope again. I'm going to add here that D.C. is run entirely by Democrats. There is not a single or a married Republican running that place. Get it? Single versus Okay, It's actually nothing to joke about. It's quite horrific. Of course, they're pushing the envelope again. Of course. DC appeared to push the envelope again. By the way, it's the same plaintiff as, you know, you can notice the Heller. That's why a little bit confusing how many Hellers there are. But the Heller at the Supreme Court was in 2008 at the lower court, uh, at the appellate court in D.C. 
It was, um, I believe, 2007, and I think it was called Palmer versus DC after Tom Palmer. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm going to look that up real quick. Okay, a little inside baseball, which will be interesting for those who of you who follow this podcast and just are interested in this stuff anyway. I was wrong. It's not it's not Palmer versus DC that was the prior case. Um, although I I think he was involved in a prior case, but um Tom Palmer, I, I met Tom Palmer and I've been trained by him. Uh he was running things at Cato. I think he was running Cato University for a while. And I met him in 2018 at a Cato event, a Cato University event. He's got a doctorate from Oxford. Um, and uh, he was a plaintiff in a 2014 case that was decided 2014 uh, regarding concealed carry in D.C. And uh, that case was eventually won on appeal um, before and, and Griffith wrote the opinion in 2017, making DC a shall issue uh, jurisdiction for concealed carry. Griffith was also a Republican, uh, was also on the original Heller panel uh, before it went to the Supreme Court. That was in 2007. And that was, well, that was before Silberman and he wrote the opinion. He was a senior judge at the time and he's a Republican and, and Griffith, I don't think wrote anything and Henderson dissented. Henderson was a Republican too. Sad. Well, anyway, if you can see my screen, Stephen P. Halbrook argued the case for the appellants in Heller versus District of Columbia, the one we're talking about right now, decided 2011, October 4, 2011. Stephen P. Halbrook is a multiple-time guest on the Republican Professor podcast here, and I urge you to check out his books and his uh, episodes that we have. So I, a, a Republican Professor podcast guest argued the the losing case that we're talking about now although brett kavanaugh agreed with stephen p hallbrook because he's dissenting here now where the heck was i in here all right um okay but the means Oh, sorry. Instead, D.C. appeared to push the envelope again. I'm on 1271 with its new ban on semi-automatic rifles and its broad gun registration requirement. D.C.'s public safety motivation in enacting these laws is worthy of great respect, but the means D.C. has chosen are again constitutionally problematic. The D.C. gun provisions at issue here, like the ban at issue in Heller, are outliers that are not traditional or common in the United States. As with D.C.'s handgun ban, therefore, holding these D.C. laws unconstitutional would not lead to 
nationwide tumult. Rather, such a holding would maintain the balance historically and traditionally struck in the United States between public safety and the individual right to keep arms, a history and tradition that Heller affirmed and adopted as determining the scope of the Second Amendment right. One, a key threshold question in this case concerns the constitutional test we should employ to assess the challenged provisions of the D.C. gun law. And take a drink of water here. The Heller court held that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess guns. Water, yay. But the court emphasized that the Second Amendment does not protect, quote, a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose, unquote. Quote, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited, unquote. In light of that limiting language in Heller, constitutional analyses of D.C.'s new, new law raise, raises two main questions. Under Heller, what kinds of firearms may the government ban? And what kinds of regulations may the government impose on the sale, possession, or use of firearms? Put in simple terms, the issue with respect uh, to what test to apply to gun bans and regulations is this. Are gun bans and regulations to be analyzed based on the Second Amendment's text, history, and tradition, as well as by appropriate analogs thereto when dealing with modern weapons and new circumstances? Or may judges recalibrate the scope of the Second Amendment right based on judicial assessment of whether the law advances a sufficiently compelling or important government interest to override the individual right? If the latter is the proper test, strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny. As I read Heller, the Supreme Court was not silent about the answers to those questions. Rather, the court set forth fairly precise guidance to govern those issues going forward. A. In my view, Heller and McDonald leave little doubt that the courts are to assess gun bans and regulations based on text, history, and tradition, not by a balancing test such as strict or intermediate scrutiny. Let me just point out right here, he nailed it right here. This is 2011. He's a lower court judge. He's dissenting. And he, this is what the Supreme Court just said in 2022. Now, admittedly, he was on that court. So presumably he shaped the discussion. But guess who else was on the court in 2022 in the Bruin decision? Chief Justice John Roberts, who was on the Heller majority. Samuel Alito, who was on the Heller majority. 
Clarence Thomas, who was on the Heller majority. Okay, so there's three people. Brett Kavanaugh was, is saying what he thinks they meant back then. Okay, and he's saying it in dissent, and he's correct. That is what they meant. Because if they didn't mean it, presumably these three judges would have said to the new justice, that's not what we meant, and you got it wrong back then. Okay. If you're not following this, we're glad you're here. It's This is a community. Welcome. Um, you know, sometimes it takes, a. it's like osmosis. It, it takes time to seep in, but it will. And keep at it because you're going to learn a lot. And it's very important, this stuff, this training that, that we're providing here. This is free. You know, how can you not love this? And it's a very important topic. It's not going away, as you can see. The Supreme Court says one thing, the Democrats turn around, the politicians, the bureaucrats, and they do exactly the opposite of what the court said. Why? Welcome to American politics. What do you mean, why? <laughs> they're Republicans, they're Democrats. That's the battle in American politics. The Democrats don't want you to have empowerment in terms of firearms. They are on the government side at all times with regard to that question. It's, it's not that hard to understand. That's, that's the dispute. Now, is that the correct answer? I don't think it is the correct answer. But then again, I'm a Republican. So that's that's the correct answer for the Republican side, I believe. Um, if you're if you're confused right now, or if you don't know what to think, or even if you disagree, you're still welcome. I'm glad you're here. You know, I'm going to continue. To be sure. The court never said something as succinct as, quote, courts should not apply strict or intermediate scrutiny, but should instead uh, look to text, history, and tradition to define the scope of the right and assess gun bans and regulations, unquote. But that is the clear message I take away from the court's holding and reasoning in the two cases. <laughs> Let me. This is me again. He's saying, yes, they didn't say that. Now they have said it. <laughs> so this is great. This is prescient. <laughs> As to bans on categories of guns, the Heller court stated that the government may ban classes of guns that have been banned in our historical tradition, namely guns that are dangerous and unusual and thus are not the sort sorts of lawful weapons that citizens typically possess at home. I'm on page 1272. The court said that dangerous and unusual weapons are equivalent to those weapons not in common use, as the latter phrase was used in the United States versus Miller at page 179 in the U.S. reports. Thus, the Second Amendment does not protect those weapons not typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, such as short-barreled shotguns or automatic M16 rifles and the like.
That interpretation, the court explained, accords with the historical understanding of the scope of the right. Constitutional rights, the court said, are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them. Whether or not future legislatures or, yes, even future judges think that the scope, that scope, too broad. Let me stop right here and say something that he's saying, because he's saying something quite profound. He's saying something about the separation of powers and uh, something about interpretation of text generally. But um, interpretation of text first, he's saying that the meaning of the provision in the Constitution means what it meant when it was adopted, what it was understood to mean by publicly understandable criteria at the time of the adoption. Um, there's nothing esoteric about this. There's nothing Gnostic about it. You don't have to have any kind of special insight, uh, you know, to be uh, supernaturally endowed with uh, prophetic insight or anything like that. It's pretty much common sense and, and honesty and careful uh, analysis, historical analysis. Uh, the second point was that about the separation of powers is he says, once that provision is in the Constitution, it serves as a limit on government, on future government. Well, it wouldn't serve as a limit on past government because that doesn't make any sense because you can't, met metaphysically, it's impossible to travel through time. That's a metaphysical impossibility. He's not. We're not talking about going back in time to find laws that are made by legislatures in the past before the Constitution. We're not talking about that. We're talking about um, future legislatures and he says, yes, even future judges are bound. Now, what's the separation of powers point he's making? For Judge Kavanaugh's separation of powers protects individual liberty. That is the central component of his constitutional statesmanship. How do I know that? Well, I've read all 306 opinions that he wrote on the D.C. Circuit. Not only have I read them at least once, I've read most of them twice, and some of them more than that. This is one of them I've read more than that. So I know what I'm talking about when I say that. Plus, I've read all of his writings about the Constitution before he came on the Supreme Court. Everything he wrote in law reviews, everything he published in the newspaper, even before he was working in the White House. And so, take it from me. Now, you don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but you can double check. I mean, it's going to take you a lot of time. But what Judge Kavanaugh is saying about the limitation of the Constitution on judges is, is that... The Constitution is the boss of all three branches. 
And the reason is, is because it was enacted by the people. And the people are the boss of the government in the United States. I, I oftentimes ask my students, who's in charge? Who's the sovereign of the United States? And the theory of the American experiment, the way it was designed, is that the people are in charge. It's not the president that's in charge. It's not the, the Supreme Court. And my students routinely get this wrong. They'll say the, they'll say the president's in charge. Okay, so the Supreme Court can't tell the president what to do? Oh, okay, well, the Supreme Court's in charge. Okay, so the president doesn't have a say on who's on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court justices can't be removed by impeachment by Congress. Uh, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> the Supreme Court judges can be removed by impeachment by Congress. The you know the president does have a role in saying who's on the court. So does the Senate. The the people mediated through these institutions are supposed to be the ones in charge. But it's the people mediating mediated through the Constitution that are in charge of government. And the court has an obligation to the constitution well because the constitution creates the court not the other way around it's article three that creates the court it's not the supreme court that creates article three so it's vitally important that the powers be separated the way the constitution designed them to be. And that there's not only a separation of powers, but there's little bits of power that each branch has over the other branch. So that we call those checks and balances and separation of powers and checks and balances are not the same thing. If somebody mentions checks and balances without separation of powers, maybe they might not know what they're talking about. You need both. You need real separation of powers, not just on paper, but in their powers that they have. Now, who's keeping all this accountable? Ultimately, it is the people, which is why we're doing the podcast. If you don't know what we're talking about, then you're part of the problem. You're part of the reason things are going to hell. <laughs> so what something you can do is to get leveled up, to get trained, to understand these things more deeply and to be able to articulate them. All right. Well, I'm hoping you're enjoying this as well, because I don't want just to be, you know, um, me poo-pooing everybody for not working hard enough. Trust me, I understand that you got a lot going on. You got a lot of stress. You got a lot of anxiety. The last thing you need is somebody else giving you a hard time about not doing enough. But I'm a professor, so that's my job. And so I have to say that. Now I've said it. Now, now I'm going to say I'm glad you're here. And let's have some fun. Because it is fun learning about this stuff. You can learn a lot about political philosophy and constitutional law and American history. And it's, it's really insightful and you're going to be way ahead. Trust me, you're going to be way ahead. 
I need some more coffee. All right. So, getting that out of the way. All right. I had to find my place. I didn't want to sit there and waste your time. We're continuing on page 1272. The scope of the right is thus determined by historical justifications and tradition, that is post-ratification history, also matters because examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of a legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification is a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. Let me just make a note here, and I've said this for the last several episodes, probably the last half a dozen. He's quoting a lot of legal authorities, and I'm not, if I did quote and unquote all the time and all the citations, you would, you know, you would be very frustrated. I can glance through here and and go through the flow of it, and I'm just going to not suggest, I'm not going to hit all those citations just just because I want it to flow and I'm capturing the heart of what he's saying I'm uh, that everything but the citations and what he said was just a common sense understanding of how to interpret historical texts the same would be true with the bible if you're interpreting the bible you would want the public understanding that it had at the time it was written. So how do you get that? You do it by ordinary methods of historical investigation, learning the language, if it's a different language, which in our case it is, uh, and the texts that are available back then, uh, and so on and so forth. It's a lot easier to do with the Constitution because it's the same language there were dictionaries uh, that were accessible, and those records have been preserved in uh, in abundance in our own language. So it's it's a lot easier to do. Okay, because the D.C. law at issue in Heller banned handguns, including semi-automatic handguns, we have not traditionally been banned, which have not traditionally been banned and are in common use by law-abiding citizens. The court found that the D.C. ban or handgun possession on handgun possession violated the Second Amendment. Stressing the D.C. law's inconsistency with our historical tradition, the court stated that few laws in the history of our nation have come close to the severe restriction of the district's law. As to regulations on the sale, possession, or use of guns, Heller similarly said the government may continue to impose regulations that are traditional, long-standing regulations in the United States. In McDonald, the court reiterated that long-standing regulatory measures are permissible. Importantly, the Heller court listed several examples of such long-standing and therefore constitutionally permissible regulations, such as laws against concealed carry and laws prohibiting possession of guns by felons. 
The court stated that the analysis of whether other gun regulations are permissible must be based on their historical justifications. In disproving DC's ban on handguns, in approving a ban on machine guns, and in approving long-standing regulations such as concealed carry and felon in possession laws, Heller established that the scope of the Second Amendment right, and thus the constitutionality of gun bans and regulations, is determined by reference to text, history, and tradition. As to the ban on handguns, for example, the Supreme Court in Heller never asked whether the law was narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest, strict scrutiny, or substantially related to an important government interest, intermediate scrutiny. If the Supreme Court had meant to adopt one of those tests, it could have said so in Heller and measured D.C. DC's handgun ban against the relevant standard, but the court did not do so. It instead determined that handguns had not traditionally been banned and were in common use, and thus that DC's handgun ban was unconstitutionally. Moreover, in order for the court to prospectively approve the constitutionality of several kinds of gun laws, such as machine gun bans, concealed carry laws, and felon in possession laws, the court obviously had to uh, employ some test. Yet the court made no mention of strict or intermediate scrutiny when approving such laws. Rather, the test the court relied on, as it indicated in uh, by using terms such as historical tradition and long-standing and historical justifications was one of text, history, and tradition. And then there's some quotes from some scholars that I'm going to, I think I'm going to skip this quotes from scholars. That coffee is good. Okay. I'm going to skip down to G which is on page 1285 in the opinion. Let's thank Brett Kavanaugh for the time that he took to write this. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Why do I call him by his first name? <laughs> I don't know him. Um, Remember that thing I said about the people are in charge? He's not my boss. I think we need to remember that when we talk about government officials. A lot of times the way we talk about government officials, we it's almost like the assumption is that they're our boss. Now, they have an honored place in our society because they are... Um, chosen through our mediating institutions that which are important um, to provide government function but i think that um, sometimes they do need to be reminded that 
that um, now, I mean, if I was in court and I was, you know, a party to a case, I, I would be, I'd have a different view about that. I would be, have, I wouldn't be saying this right now, but just as a citizen uh, exercising my first amendment rights and, and teaching about this stuff, we need to remember that the government officials are not our boss. They run the government. They don't run private citizens or private individuals. That's not how our system functions. That's not the appropriate way. Now, that doesn't mean you be disrespectful, but I don't mean any disrespect by calling him his first name. I don't mean any disrespect at all. Okay. And I wouldn't do that if I was in court. But they work for us. Don't forget that. And by the way, I think it's very helpful for them to be reminded that they work for us, not the other way around. And I think it's good for us to remember that as well. So sometimes I do jarring things like call a Supreme Court justice by his first name. Okay. I know you might think it's stupid, but there's a real reason behind it. There's a substantive reason behind it. Okay. Here's G under Roman numeral one, 1285. In sum, our task as a lower court here is narrow and constrained by precedent. We need not squint to divine some hidden meaning from Heller about what tests to apply. Heller was upfront about the role of text, history, and tradition in Second Amendment analysis and about the absence of a role for judicial interest balancing or assessment of costs and benefits of gun regulations. Gun bans and gun regulations that are long-standing or, put another way, sufficiently rooted in text, history, and tradition are consistent with the Second Amendment individual right. Gun bans and gun regulations that are not long-standing or sufficiently rooted in text, history, and tradition are not consistent with the Second Amendment individual right. Our role as a lower court is simply to apply the test announced by Heller to the challenged provisions of D.C.'s new gun laws. Now, remember, this is in 2011, and he's dissenting as a lower court judge on the District Court of Appeals, where he served for 12 years. 12 years? Yeah, 2006 to 2018. Roman numeral two, whether we apply the Heller history and tradition based approach or strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny, DC's ban on semi-automatic rifles fails to pass constitutional muster. DC's registration requirements is likewise unconstitutional. Now, how here we get to this the issue of so-called assault weapons, so-called Assault rifles, okay? <laughs> A, the first issue concerns DC's ban on most semi-automatic rifles. 
A semi-automatic gun fires only one shot with each pull of the trigger and requires no manual manipulation by the operator to place another round in the chamber after each round is fired. That's quoting Staples versus United States, 511 U.S. 602. It's at 602, note one. That is, it's in the uh, 511th volume of the U.S. reports at page, starting at page 600 and at 602 is where he's quoting note one. That is in contrast to an automatic gun. Now I'm on 1286, also known as a machine gun, which fires repeatedly with a single pull of a trigger. That is, once its trigger is depressed, the weapon will automatically continue to fire until its trigger is released or the ammunition is exhausted. The Staples case was from 1994. <laughs> That's an interesting case. I keep telling you we're going to do an episode about that. We're going to do an episode about it because it's from 1994. I need to take a drink of my coffee. Okay, so he's distinguished semi-automatic from automatic, which is rooted in a distinction in Staples, 1994. Okay, the vast majority of handguns today are semi-automatic. In Heller, the Supreme Court ruled that DC's law banning handguns, including semi-automatic handguns, was unconstitutional. This case concerns semi-automatic rifles. As with handguns, a significant percentage of rifles are semi-automatic. DC asks this court to find that the Second Amendment protects semi-automatic handguns, but not semi-automatic rifles. There is no basis in Heller for drawing a constitutional distinction between semi-automatic handguns and semi-automatic rifles. Now, this is what I love about this opinion. He doesn't use the, the assault weapon language. He just says semi-automatic rifles. That's what you're talking about. Let's just get that clear. You're talking about semi-automatic rifles. As an initial matter, considering just the public safety rationale invoked by DC, <laughs> semi-automatic handguns are more dangerous as a class are, are more dangerous as a class than semi-automatic rifles because handguns can be concealed. At this time, DC was a May issue regime where only the connected and corrupt were able to get concealed carry licenses. That was, this is in 2011, recall. That changed in 2017 with... Um, with the case that Griffith wrote and he was a Republican. Yeah. And that was, um, that's, that's, that would be something that would be interesting to go to later. Okay. So it would seem a bit backwards, at least from a public safety perspective to interpret the second amendment to protect semi-automatic handguns but not semi-automatic rifles. 
Indeed, at oral argument, this excellent solicitor general for D.C. acknowledged that an argument could be made that the government interest in banning, oh, sorry, that the government interest in banning handguns is just as compelling, if not more compelling, than the government interest in banning semi-automatic rifles. He added that the government's interest may be more compelling with regard to handguns. Council's frank acknowledgement highlights the serious hurdle that Heller erects in the way of DC's attempt to ban semi-automatic rifles. Put simply, it would strain logic and common sense to conclude that the Second Amendment protects semi-automatic handguns, but does not protect semi-automatic rifles. More to the point for purposes of the Heller analysis, the Second Amendment, I'm on 1287 now, construed in Heller protects weapons that have not traditionally been banned and are in common use by law-abiding citizens. Semi-automatic rifles have not traditionally been banned and are in common use today and are thus protected under Heller. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having a little victory drink of water here. I know he was in dissent here and he didn't have victory at that time, but time has a way of healing wounds. I'm happy. I'm happy given the way things worked out. Although there's more to do and we got to keep vigilant here. Okay. The first commercially available semi-automatic rifles, the Winchester models 1903 and 1905 and the Remington Model 8 entered the market between 1903 and 1906. The first semi-automatic shotgun designed by John Browning and manufactured by Remington hit the market in 1905 and was a runaway commercial success. Other arms manufacturers, including Standard Arms and Browning Arms, quickly brought their own semi-automatic rifles to market. Five-shot magazines were standard, but as early as 1907, Winchester was offering the general public 10-shot magazines for use with its 351 caliber semi-automatic rifles. Many of the early semi-automatic rifles were available with pistol grips. These semi-automatic rifles were designed and marketed primarily for use as hunting rifles with small ancillary market among law enforcement officers. By contrast, full automatics were developed for the battlefield and were never in widespread civilian use in the United States. Rifle caliber machine guns, excluding the Gatling gun, which required hand cranking, first saw widespread use in the European colonial powers African conquests of the 1890s. Automatic pistol caliber machine guns were fielded by European militaries toward the end of World War I. The Thompson machine gun, com commonly known as the Tommy gun, entered commercial sale in the United States in the mid-1920s but saw very limited civilian use outside of organized crime and law enforcement. 
probably because they couldn't afford the ammo. It's like uh, every second is a is a venti mocha frappuccino with whip. <clears throat> with less than a decade, the Tommy gun and other automatic weapons had be had been subjected to comprehensive federal regulation. The National Firearms Act, uh, eighteen U.S. Code Section nine twenty two. Uh, Semi-automatic rifles remain in common use today, even as the majority opinion here acknowledges. According to one source, about 40% of rifles sold in 2010 were semi-automatic. Remember, this uh, decision was published in 2011. The AR-15 is the most popular semi-automatic rifle. Since 1986, about 2 million semi-automatic AR-15 rifles have been uh, manufactured. It's even more now. In 2007, the AR-15 alone accounted for 5.5% of firearms and 14.4% of rifles produced in the United States for the domestic market. A brief perusal of the website of a popular American gun seller underscores the point that semi-automatic rifles are quite common in the United States. And he quotes Cabela's. <laughs> I don't know why I find that funny, but it, I do. Semi-automatic rifles are commonly used for self-defense in the home, hunting, target shooting, and competitions. I'm on 1288 now. And many hunting guns are semi-automatic. Although a few states and municipalities ban some categories of semi-automatic rifles. Most of the country does not, and even the bans that exist are significantly narrow, narrow, narrower than D.C.'s. <laughs> what the Supreme Court said in Heller as to D.C.'s handgun ban thus applies just as well to D.C.'s new semi-automatic rifle ban. What's more... In its 1994 decision in Staples, the Supreme Court already stated that semi-automatic weapons have traditionally been widely accepted as lawful possessions. That's in 1994 Staples case, and that's at page 612. Incidentally, I would just say that um, when I was preparing for this, uh, in the law library, I like to read, if I can, just get my hands on the book, you know. And so when I was reading this for the first time, uh, the actual book, I went over to the U.S. reports for the Supreme Court. It's a different part of the law library and picked out the 1994, you know, the 511 and um <laughs> And read the Staples case in the book. It sat there in the chair, and uh, spent spent quite a quite a bit of time. I, and I did that quite a bit for uh, for the Supreme Court decisions. I just like reading them in the book. So I, you know, I, I check, and this is this is legit. This is what the book really said. <laughs> so okay. 
what the Supreme Court said in Heller as to D.C.'s handgun ban thus applies just as well to D.C.'s new semi-automatic rifle ban. Okay. Oh, sorry. What is more, in its 1994 decision in Staples, the Supreme Court already stated that semi-automatic weapons traditionally have been widely accepted as lawful possessions. Indeed, the precise weapon at issue in Staples was the AR-15. Notice he's not using the word assault rifle. He's just saying the name of the style. The AR-15 is the quintessential semi-automatic rifle that DC seeks to ban here. Yet as the Supreme Court noted in Staples, the AR-15 is in common use by law-abiding citizens and has traditionally been lawful to possess. By contrast, as the court stated in Staples and again in Heller, short-barreled shotguns and automatic M16 rifles and the like are not in common use and have been permissibly banned by Congress. Okay. The Supreme Court's statement in Staples that semi-automatic rifles are traditionally and widely accepted as lawful possessions further demonstrates that such guns are protected under the Heller history and tradition-based test. The government may still ban automatic firearms, that is machine guns, which traditionally have been banned, but the government may not generally ban semi-automatic guns, whether semi-automatic rifles, shotguns, or handguns. Even if it were appropriate to apply some kind of balancing test or level of scrutiny to DC's ban on semi-automatic rifles, the proper test would be strict scrutiny as explained above. That's in part F of part one, which we didn't go through. That is particularly true where, as here, a court is analyzing a ban on a class of arms within the scope of the Second Amendment tradition, protection. If we are to apply strict scrutiny, we must do so in a manner consistent with Heller's holding that DC's handgun ban was unconstitutional. But DC cannot show a compelling interest in banning semi-automatic rifles because the necessary implication of the decision in Heller is that DC could not show a sufficiently compelling interest to justify its banning of semi-automatic handguns. For its part, the majority opinion analyzes DC's ban on semi-automatic rifles under an intermediate scrutiny balancing test. Even if the majority opinion were right, I'm on 1289 now, that intermediate scrutiny is the proper test, the majority opinion's application of intermediate scrutiny here is unconvincing. The fundamental flaw in the majority opinion is that it cannot persuasively explain why semi-automatic handguns are constitutionally protected, as Heller held, but semi-automatic rifles are not. In attempting to distinguish away Heller's protection of semi-automatic handguns, the majority opinion suggests that semi-automatic rifles are almost as dangerous as automatic rifles. 
that is machine guns, because semi-automatic rifles fire, quote, almost as rapidly, unquote. And I had to do that quote. <laughs> Putting aside that the majority opinions data indicate that semi-automatic rifles, <laughs> that semi-automatics actually fire two and a half times slower than automatics. The problem with the comparison is that semi-automatic rifles fire at the same general rate as semi-automatic handguns. <laughs> that good old common sense, you know? And semi-automatic handguns are constitutionally protected under the Supreme Court's decision in Heller. So the majority opinion cannot legitimately distinguish Heller on that basis. I'm looking at a quote by a, a scholar and I'm looking for where the daggum quote ends. Okay, I found it. The, the majority opinion next contends that semi-automatic handguns are good enough to meet people's needs for self-defense and that they shouldn't need semi-automatic rifles. <laughs> but that's a bit like saying books can be banned because people can always read newspapers. Well, that is a great quote. Stick that on a coffee mug. That is March in our new calendar. Oh, put that on a t-shirt. That is not persuasive or legitimate way to analyze a law that directly infringes an enumerated constitutional right. Indeed, Heller itself specifically rejected this mode of reasoning. Quote, it's no answer to say, as petitioners do, that it is permissible to ban the possession of handguns so long as the possession of other firearms, i.e. long guns, is allowed. The district contends that since it is only it only bans one type of firearm, residents still have access to hundreds more, and thus its pro prohibition does not implicate the Second Amendment because it does not threaten to total disarmament. We think that argument is frivolous. It could be similarly contended. He's quoting here. That's why he says the we. He's quoting. We. Uh, it could be similarly contended that all firearms may be banned so long as sabers were permitted. That is a quote that goes on a coffee mug too. It could be similarly contended that all firearms may be banned so long as sabers were permitted. That's a reductio ad absurdum. That's from the original Heller at page 570, I'm assuming. <clears throat> Looks like 570 to me. I'm hoping. Well, anyway, furthermore, the majority's opinion assertion does not sufficiently account for the fact that rifles, but typically not handguns, are used for hunting. In support of its law, DC suggests that semi-automatic rifles are, quote, offensive, unquote, and not just, quote, defensive, unquote. But that is plainly true of semi-automatic handguns as well. <laughs> That whole thing about common sense. I mean, he just point after point. He's just like, hmm, let's think about this for 2.5 nanoseconds. 
<sighs> After all, handguns are far and away the guns most often used in violent crimes. And yet the Supreme Court held that semi-automatic handguns are constitutionally protected. Moreover, it's hard to see why, if a gun is effective for, quote, offense, unquote, it might not also be effective for, quote, defense, unquote. If a gun is employed by criminals on the offense who are willing to violate laws and invade homes, for example, their potential victims, uh, for example, their potential victims will presumably want to be armed with similarly effective weapons for their defense. Why is this so hard for people to understand? I mean, it's not rocket science here. You know? <sighs> the very attributes that make handguns particularly useful for self-defense are also what make them particularly dangerous. <laughs> there is no reason to think that semi-automatic rifles are not effective for self-defense in the home, which Heller explained is a core purpose of the Second Amendment right. The offense-defense distinction thus doesn't advance the analysis here, at least in part because it is the person, not the gun, who determines whether use of the gun is offensive or defensive. Perhaps DC, by referring to the offense-defense distinction, is simply intending to say that semi-automatic rifles are especially dangerous. But it is difficult to make the case that semi-automatic rifles are significantly more dangerous than semi-automatic handguns. And the Supreme Court has already held that semi-automatic handguns are constitutionally protected. DC repeatedly refers to the guns at issue in this case as, quote, assault weapons, unquote. But if we are constrained to use DC's rhetoric, we would have to say that handguns are the quintessential assault weapons. That is worth saying again. DC repeatedly refers to the guns at issue in this case as assault weapons. But if we are constrained to use DC's rhetoric, we would have to say that handguns are the quintessential, quote, assault weapons, unquote, in today's society. They are used far more often than any other kind of gun in violent crimes. And he quotes the Bureau of Statistics. 87% of violent crimes are committed with firearms. Committed with firearms between 1993 and 2001 were committed by hand, with handguns. 87%. And they're constitutionally protected. So using the rhetorical term, quote, assault weapon, unquote, to refer to semi-automatic rifles does not meaningfully distinguish semi-automatic rifles from semi-automatic handguns nor does the rhetorical term, quote, assault weapon, unquote, help make the case that semi-automatic rifles may be banned, even though semi-automatic handguns are constitutionally protected. Under intermediate scrutiny, 
Yet another problem with DC's law is its tailoring. The law is not sufficiently tailored, even with respect to the category of semi-automatic rifles. It bans certain semi-automatic rifles, but not others. With no particular explanation or rationale for why some made the list and some did not, the list appears to be haphazard. It doesn't reflect the kind of tailoring that is necessary to justify infringement of a fundamental right, even under the more relaxed intermediate scrutiny test. In short, the majority opinion cannot persuasively explain why semi-automatic handguns are constitutionally protected, but semi-automatic rifles are not. In Heller, DC argued that it could ban handguns because individual could still own rifles. That argument failed. Here, DC contends that it can ban rifles because individual can still own handguns. <laughs> DC, DC's at least you can still possess other kinds of guns argument is no more persuasive this time around. Under the Heller history and tradition based test or the strict scrutiny test or even the majority opinions own intermediate scrutiny test, the DC ban on semi-automatic rifles is unconstitutional. And that's at page 1291. He goes on to talk about the registration requirement and that why that's unconstitutional. We will leave that for another time. And um, I would like to thank you for joining me. I have enjoyed having you here. I'm going to skip that part of the registration. I'm going to go right to the end and I'm going to just read a few things. He says that he was, he grew up in DC. He agrees that, you know, public safety is, you know, an important job of the, of the government. Um, and so he's, he says that I have sympathy for the, uh, the, the efforts that, that uh, bureaucrats and politicians have to make uh, the public safe. And he makes a, a comment about uh, Article Three jurisprudence. He says a lower court judge has a special obligation to strictly and faithfully follow the lead of the one Supreme Court established by our Constitution. That's quoting Article Three, regardless of whether the judge agrees or disagrees with the precedent. What he means by that is um, that the there is the language of one Supreme Court in the Constitution. Um, the word supreme means that they are head of, in charge of the other courts. So the judges on the lower courts cannot just make up something that goes against what the Supreme Court said. That would be unconstitutional, given the, the Constitution's own plain language in Article 3. He says further, D.C. believes that its law will help fight violent crime. Few government responsibilities are more significant. That said, the Supreme Court has long made clear that the Constitution disables the government from employing certain means to prevent, deter, or detect violent crime. For example, Matt versus Ohio. Well, there's Fourth Amendment right there. Miranda versus Arizona. There you go. You got... You got um, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, 
you've got these other cases here, um, Crawford versus Washington, Kennedy versus Louisiana. Of course, you have District Columbia versus Heller. Uh, you've got several, uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago. You've got several uh, limitations on the police in their effort to detect, deter violent crime or to prevent violent crime. Um, and, and so as I read the relevant Supreme Court precedents, he says, the DC ban on semi-automatic rifles and the DC gun registration requirements are unconstitutional and may not be enforced. We should reverse the judgment of the district court and remand for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. I respectfully dissent. So that's Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit in 2011 on assault weapons, so-called assault weapons. Thanks for joining me on the Republican Professor Podcast. See you next time.